should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, 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 welcome to this awesome, amazing Tuesday. This Tuesday, October uh, 18th, I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and in studio with me is my co-host, John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. What's going on, John? Um, it's a wonderful day. It's always great to see you. It is. It is. Um, my young nephew, Kenny, you know, he's he's young, and that's what happens when you um, you have young people who work for you. They go on these trips, like, to L.A. for... Ah the third time this year and <laughs> <laughs> you're keeping count yeah so i'm 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 in the back here producing while john's sitting in the driver's seat driving thank you john <laughs> uh, no backseat driving lady <laughs> <laughs> oh man um so i'm so glad that there are articles out there that are finally saying yes this election is driving people mad and driving people crazy and that we actually are all emotionally and mentally impacted by it like some people are waking up angry, some people are going to work lethargic. People like you and I are, are our immune system has been weakened, and we're catching little bugs like a cold. <laughs> so I get to blame Donald Trump for this cold. That's great. I love it. Absolutely. Why not? <laughs> we can yeah. blame him for a lot of things. Well, it'll be interesting to watch whether we're still waking up this way, you know, on November 9th and November 10th, because that's what some people are talking about now. Are are you know. Uh, our emotions raised so high on you know on one side or the other, though people are particularly concerned about the pitchforks and torch crowd. Um, that it'll be a very interesting November 9th. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel. I mean, uh, I think a lot of us uh, have already made our decision. We just can't wait to just 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 vote. But you know, I had this thought, and I wanted to bring it up to you, mm-hmm. um, just to remind everybody tuning into the Progressive Voices Network. John Zipper hosts his own week-to-week political roundtable talk that airs here on the Michelle Miao Show Fridays at 4 o'clock. Um, and so that is why John is our resident, uh, you know, expert on political things here. Because, <laughs> um, So I had this thought, this crazy wild idea. What if Donald Trump is right, then that the election is rigged and that the media is biased and that all of this is just part of a show and he, he is an actor in it? And it was all to, you know, it's all for a good thing, which is to elect the first female president of the United States. What if he and Hillary are in it together? That would mean that Hillary Clinton is the single most devious and powerful (laughs) person in the history of the planet. That uh, she, you know what? It couldn't have been because think about that. Hillary Clinton would not have wanted to set up a primary the way she had to go through, right? This was supposed to be one she could walk through easily, sail through even. Um, 
Uh, Donald, excuse me, President Obama this morning uh, uh, was responding to this whole idea of a rigged election, and he was just uh, really calling Trump on the carpet for it, saying, "Come on, man, you know this. You, you can't rig an election where the election is is really run by county by county across the country. Many of those counties and states, of course, are run by." Republicans. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Well, thank you for our resident political nerd um, <laughs> for that explanation. Let's get today's program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our next guest, uh, it's perfect timing. He wrote an article for Vice, and uh, that was right before the second presidential debate. And we all know that the third and final, thank God, um, (laughs) presidential debate is coming up. But his article touched on 10 questions the audience should ask Clinton and Trump um, during the debate. And I think it's timely to see if any of those questions were even asked during that second debate and uh, what other questions we can ask for this next and final presidential debate. So let's welcome John Sirico to the program. John, welcome to the Michelle Miao Show. Hey, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So let's cover, you know, the second debate. You brought up some great questions that should be asked. I'm wondering if any of them got asked um, at all. Did they? Um, So I don't believe any of the questions were asked. Uh, what's What's remarkable about this election cycle is that since the second debate, I, I can't even count on my ten fingers how many things have happened since then. Um, and even in the time that I published those questions and the time of the debate, the Trump tapes were released. So basically, all my questions for Trump's and even some of my questions for Hillary, you know, were outmoded, outmoded by a million more questions that I had <laughs> regarding these tapes that came out, this audio of Trump talking to Billy Bush, uh, and then, you know, everything else that came out that week and all the other Howard Stern tapes. So what's, what's just remarkable is that the distance of, of time in between these debates and what feels like an eternity, it feels like the last debate feels like an eternity ago. Like I've, I feel like since then you've seen every single Republican, you know, standing Republican still left in Congress, or at least the, the big wigs have ditched Donald Trump. Um, and also you have seven women, I think it's up to nine or ten now, coming out with allegations against Mr. Trump. So it's, that debate, you know, seems tame to what could happen tomorrow night. Would you use the same questions, you know, say, hey, you guys should be talking about this? Or what would, would you have a new list of questions for tomorrow night? I think my questions would probably stay the same for Clinton. Uh, those are just kind of personal questions that I think a lot of uneasy progressive voters probably have towards her about, uh, her support of TPP, her support of mass incarceration in the past. Um, and those are questions that have eternally, you know, kind of, you know, she's been worried about for a while. But at the same time, you have this release of WikiLeaks emails that have, you know, these troves of emails now that, you know, kind of feed into those questions I already had for her, um, just her support for Wall Street, um, which she would go after Wall Street, given all these donations and also the, the sentiments she mentioned in those speeches to her. But in terms of um, the general gist of the question is just questioning her actual progressive, you know, tendencies and whether she is, you know, close to the base or not. I think those WikiLeaks emails just kind of fed into that and that they didn't really change anything I would personally ask her that was different than what i mentioned in that article sure how about donald trump 
Uh, with Trump, I don't even know what's left to ask him. Um, <laughs> I think, like, you know, I think Anderson Cooper did an incredible job at the last debate. Uh, and I think a lot of people would agree in the media field that he, him and Martha Raddatz both did a very good job. Yeah. And when I think he really did well, that first question, when he really stuck Trump to those audio tapes um, and really asked him, going after him again and again, asking him whether this happened or not, the thing is, the next moderator, Chris Wallace, basically has to do that again with the 10 women that came across with these allegations, that came out with these allegations. Um, so with Trump, it's these questions that kind of just mutate. You know, it's the same general question, did you do this wrong thing to this person? And then they kind of just mutate with a different cast of characters. This week, it, the 10 women, last week it was uh, his conversation with Billy Bush and also whether or not he was in that Playboy porno and, or what that was. So it's like, it, it kind of is the same questions about his personality and his, you know, the general gist of his campaign and how that's mutated. And then again, uh, I don't even know what questions you can ask about a rigged election uh, other than, you, you know, crazy? what proof do you have that it could be rigged? Right. Um, and, you know, what's so hard about this election and what's so hard for a moderator for this election is you're dealing with a candidate who somehow can wiggle his way, not as good as his running mate, I, mean, I must say, but can wiggle his way out of any question, uh, basically by throwing anything in his path, you know, wiggle out of it by saying that you're rigged, you're part of the system, uh, this, you know, I'm going to be strong on this. Uh, just the amount of spin that can be applied is really hard for a moderator because they don't know kind of what to do with it. They don't know whether to nail him down. I think Anderson Cooper showed a glimpse of what it could look like, but Christopher Wallace has already kind of said that he's not going to be a fact checker, right. um, and that kind of opens the door for a whole lot of spin. Well, I, I kind of wonder about the utility even of asking a question and expecting substance from... Yeah. Well, you could say anyone at that point. If if Hillary thinks she's say it, the last thing she's going to want to do is is to say anything that could you know set off a whole another round of uh, yeah. uh, whatever another and, and horrible if, statement. Yeah. yeah, and 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 Donald Trump, you, you're not going to have him suddenly say, "Oh my God, you know I'm a terrible person. I've, I I treat women terribly." I mean, yeah. I, yeah. Someone said earlier, you know, why why even do this third debate? I mean, are we likely to learn anything other than? the old how they will respond to these questions, which is all, you know, inside the ballpark play, political talk. Yeah. So, yeah, with these debates, it's fascinating because in the past, I remember even in 2012, the debates were huge. I mean, yeah. with Romney and Obama so close in the polls, I remember watching those debates and, like, Romney would tick up one point in the polls and Obama would, would fall back and then he would tick up. And they were huge, but the thing is that in between those debates, you didn't have ten women coming out alleging that a major presidential candidate is, has, you know, sexually harassed them. Right. You didn't have WikiLeaks releasing leaks that, uh, you know, leaked emails that show the undertones of an entire campaign, the entire skeleton of a campaign. Um, these things just never existed before in our politics. So the debates have really been minimized in terms of their impact. I think that. I don't think many people will tune into the debate tomorrow night. As Michelle, I think you said quite correctly, that people know who they're voting for by this point. I was interviewing a bunch of voters the other day, uh, a lot of tourists in New York City, uh, and some Trump voters, some Hillary voters, you know, across the spectrum. 
and they're dead set in their ways. And I think the main message that I got from voters at this point is that they're so tired of the election that they just want it to end. And, you know, they divide along partisan lines, but they generally just want it to be over. And I think that there's nothing convincing these two sides at this point. I mean, it really is telling of the polarization of this country, you know, there's no kind of middle of the line at this point. And, and yet that entire second debate was supposedly about undecided voters, people who after yeah. more than a year of you know constant yeah. coverage, extremely highly yeah. rated coverage, both parties, very vigorous uh, uh, you know primary races, you could not escape this thing, and they're still at this point saying, mm, I don't really know. Um, so, no, I don't. I, you said you didn't think many people would be tuning in on tomorrow. I don't know if you were, if that was a, the, the finish of the thought or not. I, I would, I would suggest an amendment of. I don't think many people will be tuning in in order to learn, you know, how to vote or you know that. that yeah. But I, I do think. I mean, these these have been highly rated uh, uh, debates. You know, that first yeah. one was, yeah, was yeah, an yeah, amazing I number. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, I, th- I think you're totally right. It's kind of like another. It's like you're watching a soap opera and you want to find out what's next. You know, watching a Netflix series that you just want to, you want more of this kind of hysteria. As a voter, you just want more. You know, as a Hillary voter, you want to latch onto Trump more, and as a Trump voter, you want to latch onto Hillary more. I, I think people watch it these debates now through such a partisan lens, and that w- that's what would drive. It. But I think you're right. I think you know a fair amount of people, of course. The second debate had a lower viewership than the first one, and this one will probably have a lower viewership. I want to say um, again, probably because voters already know who they're, you know, they're voting for, and the general idea is that this election is so dirty and low and ethically, you know, beyond salvation that a lot of people are just tired, you know. Uh, but I do think that whoever is watching at this point is just watching it for their own kind of camps. You know, I watched the debate, and I watched it with Clinton supporters, and I've watched it with Trump supporters, and it's kind of just to cheer on yeah. your hero. Like, it's not like you're not watching it to learn much. You're learning it to watch your candidate combat the other one. Like, that is what it is now, no, I, especially I, these two. Yeah, and I, I thought that was also the case throughout the GOP primaries. I, I would put the Democratic primaries in a separate basket, though, because I think, yeah. you know, not the basket of deplorables. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Be, because, I mean, you know, whichever candidate you supported, Clinton and, and, and uh, Sanders actually had a pretty civil but tough um, discussion about, you know, uh, policy approaches and, and you know, mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. I thought that was kind of, uh, <laughs> that, might, that might have been the high point, really, of this entire uh, infernal campaign. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you're also going from 17 to five. You know, the Republicans had 17 candidates, and the Republicans, had, I mean, the Democrats had five. But at the same time, yeah, I remember watching that first debate and hearing Glass Steagall, the Glass Steagall Act, mentioned in a major de- presidential primary debate, kind of blew my mind. That <laughs> that, that that level of you know policy knowledge yeah. in a in a debate was really remarkable. But at the same time, you know, it's telling. The fact that the Republicans had 17 candidates is very telling of how fractured the party is, of course, right? And then the Democrats having only five, um, and I don't think, I think people underestimated how divided the party was between Bernie and Hillary and how it did show it. But at the same time, the Democrats are much better this election with getting their party organized, of course. You know, the Republican Party is imploding inside of itself right now. And the Democratic Party, you know, the fact that you have Bernie and Liz Warren 
campaigning alongside Michelle and Barack Obama is like such a testament to the Democrats' ability to kind of heal up their wounds very fast and kind of dispatch, and it shows how fractured the Republican Party is in comparison, you know, just as a matter of an organizational standpoint. Right. John, we're going to take a quick break right here, both Johns. <laughs> but when we come back, we'll continue our discussion about the next presidential debate that's taking place this Wednesday, or I should say tomorrow. And I have some questions, actually. I want to stick on Hillary. Uh, you made some great points um, with questions that we should ask during the second debate that didn't get asked. So don't go away, John. We'll be right back, okay? Sure. Hey, it's Michelle Miao. It's hard these days not to get a question about when I'm getting married or when I'm having kids. I get it. Marriage equality is legal now. I'm in my 30s and in a committed relationship. Marriage may not have a time limit, but what about having kids? I have a lot I want to accomplish before growing my family, like becoming the next Oprah. If I want to wait, what are my options? Join myself and our partner Pacific Fertility Center for a free seminar on egg freezing November 3rd from 6 to 8 p.m. Register at PacificFertilityCenter.com. Space is limited, so register now. That's PacificFertilityCenter.com. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here this Tuesday, October 18th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here co-hosting. And our special guest on the phone is John Sirico, who had a great uh, article that he wrote for Vice.com on some questions that we should ask during the second presidential debate that didn't actually get asked. But it's still worthy, I believe, of asking this third time around. Um, And... uh, you know, John, I, I wanted to stick with Hillary, and I mentioned that right before the break because I feel like, I don't, you know, to me, when uh, Hillary Clinton became clear as a Democratic, um, you know, presidential candidate that uh, against Donald Trump, um, it, that this was a landslide win. It should have been this way. I mean, you know, in terms, if you were to compare the two as far as political experience and blah, 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 you know, Hillary Clinton should win this period but she's had a very tough time or, or some some difficulty uh with yes those uh, undecided voters but it, even within her own 
party line, you know, some Democratic voters who uh, maybe, you know, are still diehard Bernie Sanders, uh, Bernie Sandy, uh, Sanders fans, and they just can't get over it. Uh, but one of the things that keep coming up over and over and over for each presidential candidate is they overly talk about their support and what they would do for the African-American community. And you brought it up that, you know, we really should ask Hillary about the, the her position her stance on racial injustice here in this country. John and I had mentioned we don't think that the question of police brutality will be brought up. But what are your thoughts? I mean, do you think that we should uh, directly ask her on it? I feel like if she could clarify some things around that, she might gain some of those Democratic voters who almost hate her. Yeah, and I I think that, you know, one of the more notable moments from her husband this campaign is when he apologized to the NAACP basically for what he did while in office with the federal crime bill in the 90s and how it, you know, kind of led to the biggest burst of mass incarceration under a president. And I think that same kind of emotional appeal is what Hillary needs to kind of offer. And one of the main problems that a lot of millennial voters, especially African-American millennial voters, have with Hillary is that, you know, she was behind her husband during the 90s, and she, her, her husband's administration was directly responsible for locking up thousands, if not millions, of people. Um, and I think that's something that they have not forgotten, and a main gist of the Black Lives Matter movement uh, subsists from that time. Um, and what she needs to do, essentially, is say, listen, you know, I've heard your pleas, and I have changed as a person. You know, I have spoken to the mothers of police brutality victims, and I have heard what they've said to me, and, you know, we made a mistake, essentially, what her husband said, and we can move on beyond that. And I think that emotional appeal, which Hillary, you know, when she does have that emotional appeal, uh, I think it's when she's the strongest in the debate by far. Um, I thought that's what she did the best in the first debate, is when she was calm and confident and kind of spoke emotionally rather than uh, the kind of the canned campaign that we see, you know, in the WikiLeaks emails kind of crafting her every response. But I think just combining that emotional appeal and talking about the past mistakes that she might have made with her husband um, and versing that against what she wants to offer now and, you know, offering exact policy proposals in lieu of her opponent's, you know, law and order platform, which doesn't really have any exact proposals other than stop and frisk, um, which obviously is pretty contentious in communities of color. Um, I think that's what she needs to do on this issue, and I think that's how you'll bring, you know, progressives who have lost her on this particular issue back into the fold. I kind of suspect they're, um, excuse my voice, I kind of suspect they're a little harder to reach than uh, that that would indicate, because I mean, she she has talked about this. She made the, you know, the parents of, of, uh, African-American kids who have been killed by police, you know, front and center at her convention. Um, she has presented policies. It, it would seem the only missing piece from what you said is the emotional appeal, which she even she admits she's not good at, you know. Yeah. She is a policy nerd. She is about governing. She's about, you know, solving problems and, or at least, you know, coming up with proposals and, and implementation, et cetera. But she's not. Uh, she's not Barack Obama. She's not Michelle Obama. She's not Bill Clinton. You know, um, who yep. can do that mix of intellectual and and emotional outreach. Um, I, w- I would kind of suspect if you know people have been ignoring her for this long, 
or rejecting her for this long, um, I, I, I don't think they're really going to jump on board. And, and at this point, she has to nail down, you know, for the election, she has to nail down those uh, suburban Republican women. And, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, she's way up now in Nevada. She's not doing that by, you know, reaching out to uh, uh, the left. And that, that may be very unfair in, in terms of the topics you want her to, her to discuss. But, you know, at this point, it's, it's, it's math and, and kind of ruthlessness as far as, uh, you know, deciding what you're going to be focusing on. I, I, I wanted to go in a, a, an interesting direction. Um, I, I do, a, as Michelle mentioned, a, a political roundtable, and, and a number of the reporters there over the years have complained about, you know, Hillary Clinton, Ms. Ms. Uh, uh, controlled, uh, not terribly open to the press. Um, yeah. And she still doesn't like to do press conferences, but she has been doing these, you know, the press giggles at the back of her plane, and uh, those seem to have gone over fairly well. Are those an, a time, do you think, that maybe reporters could get uh, better answers out of her than, for example, a, a debate where it is theater? And not to say that she doesn't realize everything she says in the back of the, the, the plane is, is going to be videotaped and everything, but, I mean, do you, do you think they've got a role there to kind of ask some of these questions and to frame it in ways that maybe, I mean, because she does come across, frankly, more more approachable and, and human and in 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 those uh, you know back of the plane press giggles than uh, she does on a, on a debate floor. Yeah, I, I I definitely think that she would be more open. The thing is, you know, if you look at plenty of accounts from Republican senators and Democratic senators from the time when she was in Senate and also when she was the Secretary of State, Hillary is basically a different person off camera, um, yeah. like night and day from what it seems like. You know. She's much more chummy, she's much more like herself, and she's much more calm. And I think she really has a problem being on camera. Just She gets very nervous, she gets very, you know, she has so many people telling her exactly what to say, and it probably gets to her, so she kind of just, you know, speaks with the campaign has kind of shifted to her. I remember one of the most memorable lines from this past season of Saturday Night Live was Kate McKinnon saying during the primary debate, I think you guys are really going to like the version of Hillary Clinton that we have for you tonight. And I thought that was such a accurate portrayal of, you know, her problem with the camera. But I do think, no, without a doubt, you know, if you, these past press gaggles, she's on the back of the plane. I thought she seemed the most natural, uh, especially after the debates where she kind of, uh, decompresses everything she wanted to say to the debate. She basically tells the reporters and, you know, kind of exhales a lot. These kind of questions, though, are not questions that reporters have not been asking for years um, yeah, or over this election season. I think people have always been questioning Hillary's uh, liberal honesty and, uh, you know, her loyalty to the progressive base. And I think it's just gotten even more fervorous over this, this past campaign. But, you know, no, I, I do think that when she's alone with reporters and she does one-on-one interviews, she is much more willing to do it, but she also has her own way of not necessarily dodging questions, but finding a way to explain them in very Clinton-like terms. Both yes. her and her husband are yeah. very good at it. Um, and, you know, they point to, you know, even with the mass incarceration, for example, Clinton apologized for, you know, to, to then WCP for his time in office. But then the next week or a couple weeks later, there was those uh, Black Lives Matter protesters at his event, and he couldn't contain himself basically saying there was dangerous people then, we had to lock them up. Um, 
so there's still those sides to them. There's still the past kind of with both Hillary and Bill um, that they're still trying to grapple with, I think, a bit, and trying to find their footing in this kind of new politics that Obama shaped more than they did. Um, and with Hillary, you know, she... One of the questions I think about in the second debate is when Trump kept saying, you know, she didn't do anything as New York Center. She was, you know, people hated her. And then she's, you know, she specifically listed everything she'd done in office. You know, she had like the exact numbers down and she did it very, you know, it was canned, but it was very straightforward. And she has this way, way of kind of pulling out different examples to get around the question. Uh, one really telling moment, I think, was in the primary debates when Bernie asked, or Martin Malley. It was Martin Malley or Bernie Sanders. One of them asked, how could she be tough on Wall Street? And she basically said, you know, after 9-11, I helped bring them out of the ashes. You know, um, they were about to go bankrupt, and I was there for them, so we have a long relationship. Not really answering the question, but making this kind of emotional politician-like appeal that makes sense, but doesn't really make sense when you think about it a second time and doesn't really answer the question. Um, but it kind of it gets you to the next sentence, essentially. Um, and I think Hillary's very good at that. And uh, But I do think in that second debate, you know, she was given a platform to talk about her health care plan, and she was given a platform at least a little bit to talk a bit about the foundation and Wall Street. And, you know, she's going to continue those questions until, you know, should she be elected to president? Those questions are never going to leave her. I think that's such a thing that is stapled onto her uh, by both her party and the Republicans, actually more so her own party than the Republicans. Republicans are more worried about her scandals with the emails and the Clinton Foundation than I think her own party is. Her own party seems to care more about her substance, and the Republicans care more about her scandals. But I don't think those questions are ever going away. (laughs) Great point. John, one last question for you, and then we have to let you go. Will you tune in tomorrow to the last and final, thank God, presidential debate? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll definitely be watching it. And uh, I watch it with my girlfriend, who is a staunch Hillary supporter. And uh, she usually, it's like watching a horror movie. Uh, she kind of has the <laughs> blanket up to her eyes a bit when she watches it. Um, and I'm not sure if she's scared of Trump or what Hillary's going to respond to Trump saying. Um, everyone, you know, most Clinton supporters right now are on have this feeling that you can't mess it up. Um, so they watch the debates in a very specific way, kind of like, you know, walking on eggshells when Clinton responds, just as they are when when Trump says, you know, lock her up or something just as dramatic. And it's kind of this, like, anxiety-inducing experience for an hour and a half, and I think that's something <laughs> that most Americans share at this point. John, thank you so much for joining us here on the program and for sharing your thoughts on some questions that we should be asking these presidential candidates. And and thanks for all the work that you do. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Don't go away. When we come back, we will continue the show. And actually, we have another guest for you uh, who has a very interesting path, who is an FBI agent and then uh, is now a, a, a rock star and also has some thoughts and wants to weigh in on the presidential election this year. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Tuesday, my favorite day of the week when we produce these shows because it's co-hosted by John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. Ta-da. <laughs> Ta-da. <laughs> That's exactly what it's like. <laughs> um, well, great conversation that we had with John Sirico about, you know, just some, some questions that we should be paying attention to. Uh, at the end of the day, like I said, I think, you know, most of us have made up our mind. We're ready to vote. And uh, I can't wait till the election is over. I think that's. I think a lot of people are are ready to go back to reading Facebook with not, without getting mad at their friends, um, <clears throat> and not have to deal with the most sensational news popping up every morning. So, uh, John has a frog in his throat because he's mm-hmm. just been absorbing Donald Trump way too much. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, let's continue our conversation about the election. We've got a great um, guest on the phone with us who will give us some some thoughts, some insight uh, on how she feels about Hillary, but also, you know, someone who has an interesting journey, who is a, a former FBI agent, now turned rock star, who's got a new album out. Um, let's welcome Susan Surftone. Susan, welcome to the program. Yeah, hi, it's good to be here. Um, yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's see, where do we start with you? I mean, there's so many interesting things about you, uh, that I wanted to ask. What, why don't we start with the fact that, um, you feel you've got so much in common with Hillary Clinton and that is because, you know, your upbringing and all that stuff. Let's talk about what it was like to grow up as Susan. Okay, uh, well, the editor of The Advocate asked me to take that angle with that piece, so I don't have a big enough head to think that I'm like Hillary Clinton, but they they asked me to do that. Um, My upbringing was, let's see, similar to hers in that we were from the middle class. Uh, She's about, I think she's about eight years older than I am, maybe maybe six, I'm not exactly sure. So 
we've gone through, we kind of are from the same era in a way. Like I said, she's a little older than me. We both were from modest backgrounds. I think my background was a little more lower middle class than hers. I think she was more square middle class, in the middle class. Um, went to Ivy League colleges. She went to Wellesley and I went to Smith. They're both seven sisters, which was a unique experience unto itself, being from a lower middle class background. Um, then we went to law school. Well, lucky enough to go to law school, both of us. And then we both had the call to public service. Um, Hillary wanted to, I believe, help children, and I maybe that stems from the hard life that her mother had, that she wanted to use her law degree and the um, the privileges that she had to go to law school to help her mother and children like her mother. I think her mother's story touched her deeply, probably deeper than we know. And I wanted to protect people's lives. I wanted to go into law enforcement, and the FBI was hiring, so I went. And I think there, our early upbringing is very similar. We both come from Republican households. Um, I believe her father was a very strong Republican, and my mother was a very strong Republican. So we were raised Republican, but we switched when we got to college and um, were a little bit more off on our own to examine the issues, maybe without a parent telling us, I don't know, say, 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 telling us how to think, but certainly being an influence. So that, there's where I think the early similarities lie. Uh, talk, talk a bit about your experience in the FBI. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, my, I'm getting over a cold. Um, I mean, this was, as I say, a man's world. And, and what was it like going through that? And, and was it more challenging from that angle or less challenging than you might have expected? Um, it was challenging. I'll tell you that. The training was tough. Um, it was classroom training, which for me was not very, not that difficult. I had the benefit of having gone to law school, and mm-hmm. the, the classroom work was easy. Um, then you had to learn to shoot. That was not so easy, and I, I had an instructor who was less than helpful, um, which made it harder for me. He didn't some for some reason didn't like me, didn't like women being there. I was I was in I think I went in eight years after uh women started being allowed to go to become special agents. I think that happened right after Hoover died. Mm-hmm. And I think it was about eight years before me. And there weren't that many. There were a lot of the Hoover men were still in the bureau and they didn't want us there. So sometime you would encounter one that made life really tough. And then we did the physical. Yes, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to. You can finish your thought, and then I'll ask my question. Okay. Um, then um, there was the physical training, and that was really physical training. I mean, we learned to, to box. We learned to fight. We had to fight. With, I, my boxing partner was male, in fact. Um, my father an athlete. He was a professional baseball player, minor league for the Brooklyn Dodgers. He pitched when I was born, and I was the only child, so I got a lot of athletic training from my father. And actually, he had showed me some boxing skills, so I sort of knew what to do when I got there, and I ended up with a male partner, or a boxing partner. Mm-hmm. And um, we weren't supposed to go easy on each other, and I, I have to say I got my head snapped back once, and it only happened once because it really hurt. And I hurt him a few times, and we it was rigorous for about three months, and... It was a good experience. I'm glad I went through it. It really, I think, has helped me a lot through the rest of my life. I know I, I know that I have a certain confidence having been 
lived in the Lower East Side in New York City during the crack epidemic in the 80s, and I worked up in Harlem. And I know that I think I felt confident that I could handle myself if I had to, and it's a benefit that I think a lot of young women don't have. Um, so I felt lucky in that regard. I wanted to touch on something you know that uh, you mentioned in the article, but rumors of your sexuality started by mm-hmm. some Hoover men. Uh, let's talk about that. I, I kind of uh, am interested to know just the process of like coming out and and also you know having the identity of being a part of the LGBTQ community during this time. Okay, well, you couldn't be gay and be in the bureau at the time that I was in the bureau because we were being security risk, and. Um, there were, there were gay people there, believe me, I was not the only one. And you always had that feeling that they would figure you out. Well, I'm, just by the way that I am, I'm not exactly a uh, delicate flower, let's put it that way. And um, it was easy. I think they, they could spot that I might be gay. And, of course, uh, I was surprised at the rumor mill that the Bureau seemed to be at the time. I don't know if it's still like that. I haven't been there in a long time. But I was hearing speculation and rumors that I might be gay. And you would go to work and wondering, you know, is this the day that I'm going to get called into the special agent in charge's office and have to discuss my sexuality? It could happen at any time. So you always lived with that that shadow over you that, you know, they could find out who you, that you're LGBT, and that could be it. If they did, you were out. So, so that's a matter of them finding out <clears throat> that you're LGBT. Yeah. When did yeah, you they, When did yeah. you realize? When did I realize? Yeah. <laughs> I think my early memories memories when I was about three. Oh, really? I mean, I, yeah. I, this has always been this has always been me. Always. That's just so great. And then now, you know, kind of fast forward to what you're doing now. You're like I mentioned in my introduction, you are a rock star. <laughs> You've got a new album uh, out. Some people. Um, Some people say stuff, yeah. <laughs> you got a new album out, The Magician, and so, you know, let's kind of touch on you know the inspiration of going from FBI agent to, to music. I mean, how did that happen, and, and was it like a, a an epiphany? Was it a calling? I'd say it was a little bit of both, maybe. Um, I had started, well, I my role models when I was growing, when I was growing up with Elvis Presley. I thought Elvis Presley was just the greatest thing in the world. My mother had taken me to see Jailhouse Rock when I was about three years old, and I just became an Elvis fan, and I, I just loved him. And I wanted to be Elvis. It wasn't like a girl, you know, wanting to marry Elvis. It was a girl wanting to be Elvis. And, um, and then I, the Beatles came over in 64, and I saw them, and it just looked like the best thing in the world to do. I wanted to play, wanted to learn how to play the guitar. And um, I wasn't really a good singer as, as a child. I was told I wasn't anyway. And um, I liked George. Like, I wanted to be George. I wanted to be Elvis. I wanted to be George. So I got my mother to get me lessons with the local uh, guitarist, who was like the local guitarist in the wedding band. I live in a, came from a small town, Hudson, New York. And I took my first lesson, and I was a natural at it. I was good at it. And he knew it. And I was very lucky because he taught me. He taught me like I really had the talent, could learn. It wasn't like you're a little girl who's just going to play, you know, little folk songs and everything. He really taught me to be a lead guitarist. And I was very, very, very lucky that, that he did that. And I was good at it, and I wanted to do it, but it wasn't really a career path at that time 
for a woman, for a girl. There were female jazz players that you never heard of, and I've gone back and looked up some of them on YouTube, and it's amazing. But they were there, but we never heard of them. So it was a very, very unique path, and it wasn't, um, I played up through high school. And then, of course, I got the pressure from the family to go to law school, which I did. And then I, of course, needed a job, and the FBI was hiring. But I always wanted to play play guitar in a band. And when I was transferred to New York City, um, I worked for Encounter Intelligence there. I chased KGB agents around. And um, I would go past the clubs, go past CBGB, and think that I really wanted to play there. And when John Lennon had been killed in the 80s, in 1980, it just kind of knocked something loose in me that I really, really wanted to do this. And it took a while, it took a few years, and I just I started to put bands together. And I got good enough with one band to want to play in the clubs, and when I mentioned it to the Bureau, I had to get their approval. They said no, and then I was at the crossroads of, well, you give it up. To stay in a place where, you know, it really... I'm I'm not the greatest. It's funny, I was an FBI agent, but I had a problem with authority. And, um, yeah. <laughs> and, and it was like, okay, I'm going to make a decision, and I'm going to make a decision to go with the music, because I know that when I'm the age I am now, I'm going to look back and say, if I didn't do it, I really regret it, and I don't want to have any regrets when I die. You've done so, so many. I did it. Yeah, you've done so many fascinating things. You just <clears throat> mentioned, as an aside, oh yes, I was chasing around KGB agents in New York. I mean, there's got to be like an entire book right, right there. Uh, just a bit, little bit. A lot of it was boring, but <laughs> yeah, it was just a little bit. Wow. Um, so you, so now you've been uh, a singer for how long? How, how long have you been doing this? Oh, I've been doing this now. Let's see. The surf tone started back in '95. I'd had bands with vocalists before then. Then in 1995, I was living in Rochester. The movie Pulp Fiction had just come out, and Dick Dale's Miserloo was a big deal out of that movie. And um, I put together a surf band called the Surf Tones, and we got signed by a German label, oddly enough, in uh, the town where my heroes had played, Hamburg. Uh-huh. People remember their early days in Hamburg. I got signed to a label in Hamburg and found myself playing live in Hamburg in the Reaper Bond, just like them. It was really, it was really something. <laughs> And then, um, let's see, I did three records for them as Susan and the Surf Tones, and then I worked as Susan and the Surf Tones up until 2011. I put out a, a lot of records and did four European tours and played, I lived in the Northeast at the time, in upstate New York, and then um, came out west here to Portland, put the band together again, did some California tours, and then in 2011, I... One, I always wanted to learn how to play bass, so I did. And I um, started to work with producer Steve Clavac, who has a studio outside of California, who's a drummer and a very, very good producer. We hit it off and started to work together, and I ended up playing all the instruments, and he does, except the drums, and she does the drums, so we call it Susan Surf Tone, because it's basically the records are kind of a solo thing. Sure. And that's how I got where I am now. Um, I started singing this year. It was another one, another one of those now or never moments. I always wanted to try it, and it was like I'm either going to do it or I'm not going to do it, and if I don't do it, I'm going to regret it, so I'm going to do it. And I did it, and it seemed to work out fine. People seemed to like it, so now I guess my, my records, and I'm going to do a tour in 2017. I'll be down in L.A. and then probably do an East Coast tour 
and that'll be a combination of vocals and um, instrumental. So we'll bring vocals in a little bit more, but the instrumentals will never go away. That's for sure. That's my first love. Well, on that note, I think it's perfect timing for us to play a little sample of uh, your music that you've got online here. And to note that if you would like more information or to follow Susan's music, you can head to susansurftone.com. Susan, thanks so much for being here with us. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Yes, and I can't believe, you know, we got the chance to talk to an FBI agent turned rock star. How <laughs> um, many of us? <laughs> uh, that... that <laughs> That absolutely is a first. And so thanks so much, Susan. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you. All right, on that note, let's play up, down, and all around, and it'll play into the break. So we'll see you when you get back with some final thoughts. John Zipper and I hold it down. It's Michelle Miao. It's hard these days not to get a question about when I'm getting married or when I'm having kids. I get it. Marriage equality is legal now. I'm in my 30s and in a committed relationship. Marriage may not have a time limit, but what about having kids? I have a lot I want to accomplish before growing my family, like becoming the next Oprah. If I want to wait, what are my options? Join myself and our partner Pacific Fertility Center for a free seminar on egg freezing November 3rd from 6 to 8 p.m. Register at PacificFertilityCenter.com. Space is limited, so register now. That's PacificFertilityCenter.com. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boys came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. 
You're listening to the Progressive Voices Channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here. And as our co-host, great show. Uh, It's so fascinating, you know, just kind of now that we're able to tell our stories openly, just the path that we've all taken. It's so interesting. Yeah, I I would love I could talk all day to someone who's been an FBI agent chasing spies, singer, a pathbreaker, really, in, in, in more than one industry. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. Um, so are you going to tune in to the last presidential debate? I definitely will. Um, and I agree. I'm not certainly going to be changing my vote. For one thing, I've already voted. I voted by mail, as more than 60% of Californians do, or, you know, vote uh, in advance of Election Day. But uh, <clears throat> it, it is interesting. It will be interesting to me to watch it to see, of course, what Donald Trump we get. I assume we're going to be getting the, you know, burn it to the ground Donald Trump who has nothing to lose. <laughs> what about you? Um, yeah, I'm going to tune in because I'm a risk cutter. Um, <laughs> uh, not to, to joke about the, you know, that, but at the same time, it, yeah, I, I really do, uh, you know, I like to tolerate pain. Um, at this, you know, and, and what I want to say about it is that uh, I, I won't be as focused. You know, I'm not going to be cr- as critical as I was the first and even the second time around. I had already started to lose some of the the critical thinking part of me. It's like, yeah, whatever. Let's see what happens here. Because um, it's like entertainment now. Yeah, you're not you're not going to learn policy in depth. <clears throat> you probably have already made up your mind. Um, it's the impact on you is is you the viewer is yeah. It's you're either enjoying it or or hate watching it. So let's just do this as we wind down with our final thoughts. Um, what do you think the first 30 days is going to be like after November 8th? Well, <clears throat> since Trump's people aren't going to be voting until November 28th, because that's what he told them was election day. <laughs> um, <laughs> the election indeed was rigged by having people vote on the same day. No, um, the, you know, the, the, if... It, there, there already is a lot of talk, and there's a lot of worry among, uh, among Republicans about you know Donald Trump's talk about it being a rigged election, and that all just comes down to do you or do you not accept that you lost, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's it's a horrible feeling I think for a candidate whether you're Al Gore after that long protracted loss in 2008, or uh, you know you're Mitt Romney and and uh, you you lose in 2012 when you thought you were going to win. That, I mean that evening you you start watching returns thinking you're going to win. So it's hard then to be the one who, who you know, has to go in front of the cameras and say, you know, well, folks, you know, we put in a good fight and we lost. I don't think Donald Trump's going to do that. Mm-hmm. It's whether or not he wants to continue to um, weaponize his followers, you I know, think, egg them on. Yeah. I mean, uh, the whole point of running was to, to get a big network deal, right, on television. Hey, it's going to be like a reality a new reality show featuring Donald Trump, Mike Pence, Melania. Well, and and we do know now that some members of his extended family have been pitching to investors a Trump TV channel. 
So, um, you know, that, that appears to be his end game. Um, for Hillary Clinton, of course, the first 30 days, really the first 60 days even after the election is about, you know, the transition. And so it'll be, you know, really the, the political news there will be taken over by, you know, who's going to be Secretary of State, who's going to get this job. And that, again, for political geeks, that's interesting because mm -hmm. you kind of you see people you like get in there, you're like, why on earth did he get that position or why did she get that position? I mean, it, it's, it's fun for details people. Most people at that point don't care. The next big moment for them will be, you know, the State of the Union or excuse me, the inauguration. Do you, do you think that there is a position for Bernie Sanders in the Clinton administration? I asked that last night on my week to week, and Joe Garofoli, who's the senior political writer for the San Francisco Chronicle, he said uh, his position is going to be senator from Vermont, meaning he doesn't see him going into the administration, but he's going to have a very powerful role in the Senate, um, both in pushing his stuff as well as trying to keep the Clinton administration's feet to the fire, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't think there's going to be a lot of antagonism there, frankly, because, um, you know, the thing about the Clintons is they are pragmatists. And uh, they were not able to get a lot of stuff they wanted to do when they when they first came in and their first couple years in, in 92, 93, and after that election were more activist and, and, and more uh, to the left of the party. It was when basically they were socked in the teeth in the uh, midterms, and uh, you know Newt Gingrich and, and the the hardcore Republicans came in. That they re that was kind of where you got the talk then of the third way. Okay, how do I triangulate? How can I get some of what I want without totally capitulating to the le to the right? Um, and that that I think also has left them with uh, a lot of this these legacies of negative feelings among some some of the left who wanted them to resist mm -hmm. that stuff. Hillary Clinton now is at a time when, unlike in '92. This country is kind of rubber banding, snapping back from a lot of things, both on incarceration and drug laws and, and uh, uh, LGBTQ uh, rights. So if anything, she gets to ride a wave of some of that stuff. Um, it's still going to be a brutal midterm, especially in the Senate, just because of where the seats are. But um, I think in some ways uh, she's going to have a very, I, you know, I, I don't want to, I'm, I'm going to stretch your question to what to look for in the first 30 days. They always talk about once you're in office, the, you know, the so-called first 100 days, which is an artificial thing, harkens back to FDR and, and others pushing through, you know, massive things. I think what we're going to see, though, is a lot of very uh, well-planned, well-targeted legislation that's going to be laid out in that time period. Mm. And uh, we'll see if her experience with working with Republicans, which she has been able to do quite effectively, if that helps her get around some of the stuff that was just t a total blockage to Obama. I was just going to say, I mean, I think her first 30 days is probably helping Barack Obama plan his exit party. <laughs> <laughs> Who should she nominate for the Supreme Court? What do you think? I really haven't really put much thought into that. Well, let me let me ask this because there are some folks who say she should swing big and nominate Barack Obama or, you know, another really big uh, Democratic name. I mean, do you think she would do something like that? No. You know, moderate, maybe even more conservative. George W. Bush. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah. On that note, it's time to end the show. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Michelle Miao Show. I'm here Monday through Friday on the Progressive Voices Network, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on Fridays. John Zipper airs his week-to-week political roundtable talk, and as you can tell, he is our inside political nerd, so you'll want to tune into that. And then Sundays is B.B. Sweetbriar with It's Everything with B.B. Sweetbriar. So uh, we do a lot of like musical stuff, cultural stuff on, on Sundays, and everything else, you can head to michellemeow.com. 